to Season 2 of Trends and Tensions presented by BHDP, where we take a look at trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. I am your host, Brian Trainer, a workplace strategist at BHDP based in Cincinnati, Ohio. Today's topic is Design 2020. We challenged some of our design leaders to make predictions on the future of design trends, which proved a bit ambitious. So the discussion focused more on data, storytelling, and human experience. I'll let my guests introduce themselves. Samantha Delabar, I'm one of our uh, design leaders focused on the interior design side. Tom Ahrens here at BHDP. I'm an architect and a designer, and I lead the workplace architectural design work for the office. Andrew McQuilkin, I lead our retail practice here at BHDP. Excited to be here. I am too. We've been talking a lot about design through the year. We want to lead into 2020 thinking about the future of design. Um, but what's interesting is we have workplace and retail represented, plus architectural design, the outside of the building to the inside to how people shop. So that seems to be a topic of convergence, right? We're talking about things coming together. And I wanted to know, Sam, what can you tell us about convergence? What are the overlapping themes? What brings you guys here today? Yeah, so a lot of times when we're working on different projects across different markets, there tends to be an overlap where we enjoy using our broad expertise to influence the project results as a whole. So as we all know, there's been lots of talk of the, the residential or hospitality mindset coming into the workplace environment, but retail has a lot of impact on that too with the, the future of where amenity spaces are going to allow people to kind of have that choice of, of where they are within the workplace. So we're kind of seeing that as a, a trend right now and, and seeing it continuing into the future. What's really interesting, I just went to a summit called the Self-Care Summit. So it was the first of its kind. And it was really coming from the grocery industry looking at the retailification of healthcare. Hmm. So it was interesting to see that retail is now being depended on as where healthcare is going because these large healthcare institutions aren't moving fast enough and a lot of it's going down where consumers are looking toward retail solutions like little clinics and things like that that are part of the grocery experience or the pharmacy experience. So they're now depending on retail expertise to help move an industry forward. So to be able to work with workplace and higher ed and things that retail's doing is always fascinating to be able to work across the markets here at BHTP. Mm -hmm. Which yeah. is then interesting on the wellness factor within the workplace, bridging from the retail experience now with health and wellness coming through. Yeah, are you seeing more trends of people bringing that wellness experience into their workplace from a clinic standpoint, or are they bringing retail into workplace, vice versa? Well, we know that there are some pharmacy companies out there that will create retail experiences, bringing the pharmacy to big corporate campuses, where there might be a, a Walgreens in a corporate campus that's just for the employees of the corporate mm -hmm. campus. So we've seen a little bit of that, and BHP's done some work in that realm. I think as we look further and beyond, I think more and more of those things are gonna start popping up as far as um, amenity spaces and areas people can have right at their fingertips. You've got these, um these concepts that are happening in, in Asia is where I see them the, the most happening, where the building itself is a city, where it mm -hmm. has retail, where you work, where you live, yep. your health care, all combined. So when you talk about never having to leave, the entertainment is also being incorporated. You don't have to leave the block anymore. 
So this is just an, a way of containing people and giving them the convenience that they're yeah. looking for on all those levels. So it's interesting the way these relationships are getting smaller. We're not trying to expand broader. Yeah, I think it's a matter of convenience. And, you know, today's world, everybody's so busy. I think there's a lot of families where both parents work. Right. Yeah. So I think having access, immediate access to a lot of these things that maybe in the past they were able to do on their own time needs to be more prevalent in their workplace or wherever where they live or work so they have quick access to these things to take care of all the other responsibilities they have outside of their work responsibilities. What I want to talk about though then is how design is impacted by this new direction of things. Well, I think we're always interested in creating inspirational spaces for the people that use them, right? So that's really important to us and allowing the work to flow in a way that has a benefit to the business also. So really combining those two ideas of business and people and how they interact and intersect and how that leads into this design philosophy that we're, that we're working on and evolving. So really the idea of being inspirational, being empathetic to the people using the spaces, we're really big in having informed d design that we're not just doing things because so we are interested in digging a little deeper and understanding why things happen and how we want to impact people. So I think all those things are combinations of this kind of new design philosophy that we're looking at and how that can help support people in today's world. I mean, when BHP says we're designed for people, it could be the shopper, the worker, the student. I think what we're trying to bring is that you, we really try to look at that business side of what's going on, but then we become the advocates for, for those users, for those people. So by combining those two things that Tom's talking about, we're able to you know, create these experiences that deliver on our, our positioning around being empathetic, being memorable, being unique, and being informed. Um, a lot of talk is around experiences right now. Having it from a sensory, you know, you remember certain things by the way it made you feel. Yeah. So as spaces are being designed and it's triggering and emotional and how we feel about things, we're starting to see this trend that that's more important in environments versus just activity settings and choice and all that. So it's actually this connection that you create. So having a higher percentage focus on that versus oh, can I sit in a chair and can I sit on a couch and can I sit on that? So we're starting to see a trend and a future state of getting more in touch with those senses versus just the activity that needs to occur in there. I think one of the things we really look at is what's that customer journey mm -hmm. or the worker journey or the student journey. I think Disney is just amazing at creating the narrative, writing the story ahead of time. Right, so that they know that you can evoke emotions or tap into emotions within the cadence of that storyline. So we're working really hard at developing tools that allow us to kind of map out what those experiences should be along that journey or along your day if you were in a workplace so that we can you know, plan what those emotional responses are and control the negative ones so that you can leave every day thinking that you've accomplished what you needed to accomplish and be joyful about returning to work or go to shop or go back to school the following day. And another thing we look at is design isn't for the designer. Design is for the people using the spaces. Well, that's not why I went to school. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I think for us, it's really important to, to think about the people using the spaces. And we'll many times put ourselves in the, into their shoes and look through their eyes and really think about what they'll respond to and what is something of value to them to really enhance that experience. So I think it's, it's kind of stepping outside of our own point of view and really looking at what we 
predict or anticipate the end users want as a as an experience as they're utilizing these spaces does the outside of the building have as much of an impact as the inside because most people live and breathe in the structure but can the experience begin outside of the building we actually approach that with our clients that the experience starts the moment you start heading to that destination and what that whole experience is at your point of arrival to the site to the front door? What are those moments of interaction that have an impact on somebody? Because it really starts the moment they arrive on site. It's not just the impact once they're inside the space. So we're constantly thinking and promoting that idea that the experience isn't when you put your hand on the front door, but it really is about the time you arrive at at your destination, that first kind of moment of interaction. We did an interaction with a client that we talked about what it was like to come to work every day. And the worst part of most people's day was the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And it was that coming from the car and there's no shuttle, there's no protection from the elements. And it was just this long walk across this asphalt field. And fortunately, the client was in the room as we were interviewing people and they're like, we should probably do something about this because it is truly awful. If that's the negative thing that you remember is the walk in, it makes you not want to walk in. Which is yeah. also a walk out. Yeah. So you're yeah. the beginning and the end of every day is that parking lot. And then it's like, oh, I got to do it again tomorrow versus, oh, I loved my day. I'm going back. I'm like so excited. You said sensory. I want to talk a little bit about sensors too, because when we think about the future, data seems to be driving a lot of decisions for companies. They want to be able to reinforce it, back it up and say, all right, we've got the proof. Now we can do it. Because in my opinion, you can tell me if I'm wrong here, the speed at which things are changing based on how quickly technology is going, people want to have a lot of support for any decision they make because they're probably going to have to make another one soon too. So they don't want to spend a lot of time and effort and money on the decision that they're making now. So we talk about sensors and technology. Like, What have you seen from data and analytics standpoint in your lines of business? Well, I, I would say that all, all of us participating today would agree that data and the analytics of that is driving design and it will be in the future. So whether that's a prediction or a trend, not sure. Okay. But I think it's the reality is that um, just in today's world with the, the amounts of information that's available out there, they'll continue to help inform inform our design work as we move forward. I think the idea of the data and, and the analytics of that is we really have to figure out a way to simplify that and make that information useful to designers. We've seen kind of stacks and stacks of data that doesn't necessarily tell you what to do, nor do we want it to tell us what to do, but we want to just have it be part of the process to inform us to help make decisions moving forward. I think we have to be careful that we don't become embedded and rely holistically just on the data. I still think there's some of the soft side that has to play into, into the architecture and design of space. We would call that the empathetic side, I think. So become this combination of leveraging that data and still relying on these other things that we've been talking about to help inform decisions. But I think to the heart of it, it's really about making informed decisions that is based on something that's real. Yeah, and to kind of kind of add to Tom's comment there, it almost it gives us a jumping off point. So we gather the data, we learn a lot from what that data is telling us. It gives us a baseline to start, right. and then we kind of evolve from there. So kind of thinking of it as okay, here's what we're learning, here's what we see. Now, does this feel right? So kind of back to that, the why, right? Is this really meaningful to the project? to get us to move forward on the design approach. And Samantha and I are working on a project currently where we actually did a lot of observation and gathered a lot of data 
in terms of people are moving and flowing through a lobby space that we were uh, modifying. And the data said to make some significant modifications to that lobby space. And then in talking with the client about that and, and leveraging that data and having an informed conversation with them, really the softer side information of how people use the space today, how they didn't want to necessarily adversely impact the people that are using the space in a certain way, it really helped lead us to a decision that wasn't fully based on going the direction that the data was telling us. Well, how do you get the soft metrics? Um, Focus groups, talking to the people. Conversation. Yeah, it's more that, that value of the place and is it a successful tool for me to get my job done? Yes or no? It's the stories. It's the it's the feedback. It's the, again, that emotional connection to it that I love this place. I'm here. I can be 100% successful. I wouldn't go anywhere else. So sure. that's kind of that soft, touchy-feely side right. versus the hard data metrics. But back to Tom's story, there is some truth in the client feeling as though we did the due diligence. So he has a comfort level of understanding that, yeah, we probably don't need it, but we're going to keep it to keep the people happy, and it's about the people. So again, we kind of see this future of this bounce off of the data needing to be there as our baseline, and then what we tend to do with it to inform our final decision is yeah. quantitative and qualitative. Sometimes status quo is actually legacy. And there's a lot of emotional connection to the legacy of a brand or a space. Mm. You know, when we were doing work for Macy's Herald Square, the thing they spent the most maintenance on were these wooden escalators, the first wooden escalators in the country. Right. Right. You know, they run them to fail just because they, they have to make their own parts for the treads. Obviously, the data says get rid of them. They're costing so much money. But when you ask the consumers what they felt about it, the shoppers of that store, that's what they all remember when they were little was these wooden escalators and the wooden treads. So we worked really hard to say, you know what? Well, let's use these wooden escalators. Let's get all the sheetrock that's been covering them all up and expose them, make them the hero of the space to talk about the legacy of the brand and the memories they had in their youth of shopping that store. So we actually turned what was this money-sucking status quo um, element <laughs> into a legacy lore element that represented the story about the brand. Those are things you have to be really careful of. You have to listen to the people who use the space and what are the stories that they're telling that they talk fondly of and don't screw them up. You know, heighten them, make them the hero. And it, that went back to your creating a memory and being inspirational, right? That was part of the design. Yeah, I mean, people remember the one person we talked about, oh, I used to go up the escalators to go see Santa every Christmas. Mm -hmm. And you have to go up all the wooden escalators to get there. So it was part of their their anticipation of this journey to finally meet Santa Claus <laughs> for the year so they could tell them what they wanted. And I'm sure for that story, Andrew, part of that, you know, thinking about the vision of the goals for that project, I'm sure some of that content was part of the design drivers for it. So when you're faced with this decision to make between data-driven and maybe a softer side of driving a decision, weighing it against those design drivers, once again, helps point you in a direction that might be the right solution, even though data might be telling you one thing, soft is telling you something else. One was leverage the heritage, was one of our design drivers. So what other influences have data had specifically in retail? We talked about this some in the retail podcast, but data drives how retailers react to everything, basically. Yeah, you know, the, there's this old adage that people turn to the right. You know, you have to think about, yes, I want to planogram and lay out my store, but you have to understand the nature of your shopper. Mm -hmm. And so can you leverage people turning right into creating a better customer journey? Now, you can get people to turn left, but you have to leverage 
other things. That to be something, they have to give them a reason to turn to the left if that's what you want them to do. But otherwise, take these natural tendencies that the data is enforcing and, and saying, yes, 70 something percent of the people are going to turn right uh, to create a customer journey around. And then there's data around sales, which is the end all be all of everything they're going to have is how are products selling based on the adjacencies, the size of the baskets, how long people are staying. When you did the Macy's Herald Square project, did you get the soft metrics just by talking to leadership or were you actually speaking to customers? They had a marketing agency. They went and, and talked about who the customer segmentation was. We're given a deck of the five or six different types of customers for one floor around this, the junior's customer. And we said, you know what? That's a really big deal of how this huge space could be segmented around these different personality types. So you can also group the brands because these young ladies were buying within those, those types. So that gave us, from a planning standpoint, a programmatic planning standpoint, the strategy around how to break up the space. So they didn't have to go shop the entire store or the entire floor. They can go to their area and then get all the brands that are associated with, including the cosmetics brands that we brought to the floor. Yeah, so Brian, again, that relates into the workplace environment too on what triggers people to use spaces. So we always talk about you know, wherever the best coffee is, that's where people are going to gravitate towards. So learning from our retail experience on how to drive people through that journey and what gets them to that end point is just as important in a workplace environment. If we're designing these great places, we want to make sure they are being utilized efficiently. One of the ones that I saw recently was actually with WeWork. Just a simple driver was food. Mm -hmm. That they would have lunch every day within the multi-story tenant thing that they did within this building, so they might have five different levels. They served a different food at each kitchen, and they rotated it. Uh. So what it did is it forced people to commune around these kitchen areas who liked tacos. And one day tacos on the fourth floor, the next day mm -hmm. it's on the sixth floor, the next day. So it was interesting they were using that as a driver to get people to connect. Because otherwise you're in your little glass cubicle, you're in there all day. You have no you, reason to leave, you just don't. Yeah, yeah, you might be able to go to the communal space to get your two beer tickets filled every day. But you're not necessarily making new connections. So by getting people to cross floors through food was an interesting approach. Yeah, so I think the, the trend always was those impromptu collisions, right, at the water cooler. Yeah. But now we're seeing it going to, needs to be taken a step further and having a trigger point to actually draw people to that. So we are seeing a shift to providing different amenities in different type spaces to give people that choice. Because someone may love a Starbucks coffee, but Someone may love the local brew, so we have to give that choice and it will draw people in different directions. So amenities are driving a lot of future workplaces. That's the differentiator yes. coming in retail right now to compete with online. Those experiential components right. are, are where they can win. Those interactions are where they can win because you know online is a two-dimensional world. Mm -hmm. So by getting them and, and looking at those amenity spaces and those experiential places to build memory around, I, I think that's where the win is. And now that they're actually spending a lot of time gathering data, they can validate the movement of people and their reactions, especially if you start to have a, a feedback loop and a survey loop, you know, those soft stories that come together that say, okay, we did do the right thing, or we might have to tweak it in a different direction just because some of the feedback we're getting from, this, from the survey. Yeah, so that whole online is going to be the death of the brick and mortar store. Well, the response has been, how do you get people to come back to the brick and mortar stores by creating an experience, right? Yeah, which they yeah. value engineered out over the past 20 years. So yeah. now they're battling to, to reinvent <laughs> what they used to have. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a great point Andrew makes about leveraging data to not inform just the design, but actually to talk about how the space is actually being used. Yeah. Um, so it is a great post-occupancy type of tool to see if 
if the space is being utilized the way it was envisioned and how it's designed to be used. And then it's a great method to help make adjustments on the fly if you need to. Here in our own office, we've used data research to kind of impact the layout of our office. And we're currently evaluating that to see how that would help modify it in the next generation of it. And it's not necessarily to say it has to be modified in a significant way, but maybe there's some tweaks here or there to help optimize how the space is being used. With data being more live, I think our role as architects and designers of creating a space, you know, do a post occupancy and walk away is going to stop. I think so long as there's data continues to be gathered, okay. I think there's a need for interior design and architecture to keep optimizing a space. So that's kind of the things that we're looking at for the forefront is how do we stay engaged in the process? So that's almost so, a live data feed, right? Yeah. And so incre pulse. Yeah. incrementally, pulse. the space improves not every five to 10 years. It's also looking at data um, in a different light. Yeah. So data right now is looking at the past to look at the, what the things the future would be, but how can you leverage data and the soft aspects of, of gathering information to be more prescriptive, to create solutions for the health of, of the space and the people that use it. So that's one of the things where we're trying to make that shift and saying, yeah, the data might validate what you used to do and why you used to do it, but we've got to create spaces that have that flexibility or the ability to adapt to the new prescriptive solution to the, to the space. So how do you create something that's flexible and can adapt for the future without it being too generic? So the use of a room, for instance, what we're sitting in, one day it could be used for a formal meeting, the next day it could be used for a recording studio. Yeah, it's a podcast. Yeah, it's something to sit in, it's something to put your drink on, so it's flexible, right? It's not a tear down and we have to rebuild it anytime the use changes. So not defining the use of a space and understanding that that, that can be flexible for the future is a, an educational communication thing that is hard for clients to comprehend. Because you right. think you build it today and that's what I have to use it for for the future. So it's trying to alleviate that pressure of no. You could put a team in here if you wanted to. It could yes. be their workplace. Yes, it has walls and a door, but it's not an office. But it could be an it office. It could be an office. Yes. We have worked on some projects where we've kind of designed with a kit of parts, yeah. and that kit of parts is somewhat modular so that in the future if they need to switch out a room from use type A to use type B, it's it's relatively painless to do that. Right. So we are kind of leveraging that approach. You know, I think this is a, a question that all of our clients are grappling with, the idea of flexibility and adaptability. Everyone's looking for that because if you see where the world is from a workplace standpoint today versus 15 years ago, it's changed a lot, right? The impact of technology on how people work and, and where they do their work is huge. So to predict what's five years out, it's fun to do, but the reality is, is it really going to be that way? Yeah, we're definitely seeing in the future that the standards are going away and it's more of a shift to guidelines. So it's more about the methodologies that will occur and to inform the next solution. And what's the difference between a standard and a guideline? Standard is a one-size-fits-all. We constantly roll it out, yeah. versus guidelines are just a basis of design oh. that you should hold true to as you're evolving the design solution. So the standard says you've got a new space and you've got 100 people and there's this many at this level, so it's this many offices, this many desks. Go. You get two yeah. conference rooms and have a nice day, right? Yeah. But a guideline is more how there should be maybe this percentage of collaborative space per the different working groups that would be within the space. So that gives you a guidance in how to plan uh, the space. But you, but then you test that and say, hey, here's what we think based on our information, and then you go back for 
soft data, right. say, how does your group work, right? Right, and then that will inform then the next solution versus saying every space should have 10 offices and 12 workstations right. at this size from now and forever. I think we, we talked initially about all this technology allowing us to think more globally, but what's happened is a lot of that centralized all the decision making when you talk about standards. So there's a lot of retailers out there now have figured out that you know they, they value engineered everything into the standard to, to be able to open up or make more space happen. And what they realized is they became genericized. They lost who they were. They lost their brand. Starbucks is a great example where all the design decisions were made at a central location. And those people who had that control value engineered out the design because, you know, it costs money and we could do it cheaper. And now they've done it where they've regionalized the design. So now there's five yeah. or six different divisions around the country. So that group has a better understanding of those local users or those mm -hmm. regional users. Now they've created concepts like the reserve, which is purely local. So they need to understand the people in that city or in that block, they're resourcing all the products and materials as much as they can and using local artists to create a personality layered into their brand. So you're giving the power back to, you know, I'll say the, the regional manager, the store manager to contribute to the solution because they're closer to the customer or to the user than a centralized decision-making office is. So the fact that in workplace that's starting to happen, I think is a really great idea to understand your local employee force Absolutely. and making sure that you can adapt. I think the, the true longer term trend is how do you personalize it, get to that fourth level where the space is your space to adapt and change to you. And there's technologies out there that are starting to have that and your phone is a great tool to be able to change the light level, the mood, the, the amount of daylight coming in for the time of day that you're working and the things that you need to get done. So that might be that ultimate flexibility. But if you build in the guidelines and the, those capabilities from the beginning, and you give them the power to feel that they have the choice, I think they're going to create their own memories and their own stories that are personal to them. I actually had seen a few years ago that Microsoft invested in an architectural firm. And the reason they bought into that firm is because they were looking at, you know, when you have a raised floor, putting a group of sensors, introducing that Internet of Things within each one of those floor units that could sense how many people were in the space and adjust the temperature hmm. based on biometrics like how can you make it more comfortable for the people that are in there because they show that raising the temperature I forget like um, four or five degrees is the same as a decibel increase in noise in the level of uncomfortable it makes people but they also prove there's a demographic change yeah women want typically want a space that's warmer to perform better mm -hmm. and men want a space that's cooler to perform better so how do you localize that and personalize it in such a way that works for each individual? As you know, Sam's sitting here with a wool blanket around her. Yes. <laughs> but interesting thing that the sensors, the data that we're gathering from the sensors that we create with you know our our divisional company Avuity, it looks at sound levels, light levels, temperature level. There's all these different factors within our sensors that can actually help us gather more d data that's going to have more impact on the stories and the memories we create because the sensory perception is is the key I think to memory sure right so as we work with our clients to figure out deeper what these problems are and that we realize more and more that this empathetic solution is the key we're going to be able to gather and leverage data at a whole different level so as we g go deeper into creating solutions around data and getting the soft side, we can leverage these sensors to kind of marry the two together. And I think that's the long-term key for us. I think the idea with sensors and AI, virtual reality is the trend, which I don't think is 
anything revolutionary is that technology is going to keep driving how we design and what we design. The ability to leverage technology to virtually build a, a building without having to go out and actually physically build it allows the customer and the end users to experience the space in a way that they haven't been able to in the past. And we're seeing it more and more that, that our clients want to experience the space before they actually build it. And if we can virtually build it, maybe that helps us answer some questions that in the past we wouldn't be able to answer until after the project was completed. Right. Yeah, so there's this seamless um, adaptation with technology. For instance, walking in a conference room and it all starts up for you versus fumbling with trying to get it to start, getting the phone to work, getting all those kind of things. And I know on the retail side, there's a little bit more of that that's happening on this recognition. You know, your phone's picking up every data that you're talking about. So how can we have those environments in the future to be that smart when we walk in and it's that memory of this ease? Right, that I can start my meeting and I can go versus right. the fumble and we're 15 minutes late and then it just starts everything off that way. So a little bit of prediction there for, for 2020 is just to see how all these different disciplines within the work environment and retail environment start to come together with technology knowing it's going to constantly evolve and go forward. They have technologies within fitting rooms and the fitting rooms are that I'll call the PNG moment of truth happens in a fitting room when you when you try something on and they have the light levels and the sound levels of a fitting room where you still have to push a button but you pick is it a summer party? Is it an evening event? And you push the button and the lighting changes and adaptive. Even the music and the sound, the mood changes now for some of these fitting yeah. rooms. Yeah. So that you can look at your black dress in an environment that it's going to work for you in terms of what the occasion is. More and more as you start to migrate that into the workplace world, yeah. you're going to be able to, you know, come in and it might not be the Lutron panel anymore. It might be just, it might, AI might understand exactly what right. you're up to right. and adjust the light level. And maybe during the meeting, it adjusts the light level. If suddenly people are standing up and working to a board, maybe the spotlights hit that the whiteboard now. So now you can, you know, direct everybody's attention there. I think having smart spaces that accommodate the needs of the user, I think, is is just the next transition that's going to happen. Absolutely, and that's kind of where we started the conversation of moving from activity setting to mood settings. So thinking about respite and recharge. For one person, it could be hard rock and roll, you know, <laughs> da, da, da. to another person, it could be light jazz. So how can I go in a respite room and be able to set the mood for what makes me recharge? So having that user adjustability is going to be increasingly more important. Yeah, and a lot of our clients have, you know, ID badges that they have to swipe into different places. It's not a far reach to think you could walk in a room and it could recognize that yep. it's you. Now, you've gone on some city visits. We do uh, what we call design tours, okay. um, and we, we take a group of 10 to 12 people, and we kind of go out and see what else is going on out in the world. So I uh, usually go to a major city. Uh, we've been to Seattle, Toronto, New York, Chicago. The idea there is really to take people out outside of the office and see what else is going on out in our profession, how these other cities are being shaped and formed, to see what kinds of interesting, inspirational types of architecture and interior design are happening in those areas. And, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about convergence. We do it from a cross-market point of view. So we make sure that we have representatives from not only all of our different markets, but all of our different disciplines. Um, so we'll have interior designers, architectural designers, graphic designers, along with project architects. Um, really that kind of cross-section to get out and have some dialogue around 
things that we see out out in the world outside of our own little cities Bubble. here. Yeah, bubbles. But, you, so. but you're also visiting workplaces. You're visiting retail spaces. You're visiting universities and museums and you know signature buildings as well. So the idea that you guys are having a constant dialogue on these trips and then a follow-up to kind of bring back those learnings to everybody else, I think that's it inspires the people here to, to stay more engaged in the industry that they're in and the discipline they're in when we share those ideas together. And I think to be our most creative, we need to be curious and inspired by other things outside of our box. Right. So I think really getting up out of our chairs and, and moving and getting out and seeing other cultures can highly influence our different design solutions. And that's a good disruption because it's easy to get yeah. tunnel vision when you're focused on finishing the next thing. Like right. we, we get burdened with just do, 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 do. Repetitive. But I think getting those experiences of different cultures back to what Andrew was saying is that we're seeing a lot of designs have more of a regional influence versus the design trend of today. Right. So how do we balance that? We need to know what those regions are to understand what those influences are because cultures are so dramatically different from one city to the next. So and what are those subcultures within those cities that we can uh, make sure we're designing for? Back to what Andrew said, sometimes you have to go from like the Google world into Google map, mm -hmm. but then sometimes you gotta get down to street view to really understand yeah. what's special about that. Yeah, so say, is it suit and ties or polo shirts and khakis, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. There's two dramatically different type spaces to relate to those cultures. So uh, seeing an increasing trend that I see going more into the future too of spaces are designed to reflect the culture of companies, not the next cool trendy thing that everyone else is using. So let's put it here because it's cool. I would like to thank our guests, Samantha Delabar, Tom Ahrens, and Andrew McQuilkin for joining us today and sharing their stories and expertise. And thanks to you, the listener. If you like what you've heard, we encourage you to like, subscribe, and give us a review. We hope you join us next time for Trends and Tensions presented by BHDP, and may you have a constructive day.